At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine spent a half hour with us yesterday for a bonus episode of This Week in the CLE. We'll be talking about that a little later today. It won't publish till Sunday. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my esteemed colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. That was a fun talk we had yesterday, right? It was. I enjoyed it. All right, we'll get into a little bit of detail later as a tease, but let's start with some other news stories first. How much will the abrupt closing of the IX Center cost the city's airport, which it turns out is responsible for the costs and taxes of the place? Lord Johnson, I did not realize that they used the Airport Enterprise Fund to pay for this, but I guess it makes sense because they did uh, buy the building with the airport funds, so it's an airport asset. But was a surprise and it's an expensive surprise. What does it cost? Yeah. So it's going to cost somewhere around $2 million just for the airport because that's what the IX Center Corporation, which had been leasing the IX Center, had been paying in rent. But on top of that, so outside of this airport account, the city's also going to lose the payroll taxes collected on nearly 180 employees who worked at the IX Center and will have to pay $800,000 a year in property taxes that have been covered by the IX Center Corporation. So you're looking at a more than $3 million hit for Cleveland. But what's really interesting about putting it under Hopkins is that that is a separate account. And so you don't use tax dollars to run the airport. So the airport has to come up with that chunk of money. And so before the pandemic, Cleveland had expanded their amount of revenue Hopkins generated to more than 50% of the budget, but the airline still kicked in about $90 million a year, I believe. So I'm thinking this is going to hit the airlines, which are already suffering, and then pass that on in fees or higher costs to Cleveland passengers. Yeah, I mean, the, the city charter is clear. The airport is an enterprise fund. You cannot use general fund dollars to pay for it. The, there was a time that the landing fees for the airlines were ridiculously high. The city has done pretty remarkable work to generate revenue from concessions and other things. But the pandemic has walloped the uh, the airport. Their revenue was way down. So this is this is ugly. I was covering City Hall as the City Hall reporter when the city bought this thing. Um, and what people probably don't remember, this was when Mike White was mayor. They had big plans for having longer runways. They had a bloody battle with the owner of the thing, Ray Park, who did not want to give it up 
but they under the threat of condemnation, they got it. And no sooner did they get it. And they thought, you know, we really don't need that for a runway. And then they leased it back to Ray Park. It was it was kind of a, a boondoggle. And now it's turning out to be an expensive one because evidently that land will never be used for a runway and it may never be used for shows again. We do have a great story that Susan Glazer is publishing Saturday that looks at the future of the key shows that rely on the IX Center to generate revenue, the auto show, the boat show, the home and garden show. So look for that Saturday on cleveland.com and in Sunday's Plain Dealer. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Cleveland Lake Erie wind turbine project having its Phoenix moment, rising from the ashes of its premature death? Jane Cahoon, I'm not really surprised that this thing came back because of everything that's going on with the scandal of First Energy. This felt icky, like what was going on in that other case. Uh, It was a shock back in May when the Ohio Siting Board gave it its tacit approval, but included a poison pill that basically killed the project. So big news now that it's back. What's going on? Yeah, uh, well, maybe you weren't surprised, but if you saw their their draft ruling that Jeremy Pelzer got a hold of earlier in the week, it was a surprise right. because it looked like the whole thing was predetermined that they were going to stand by their previous decision. But on Thursday, they had a change of heart and they unanimously voted to remove these um, so-called poison pill restrictions that would make the project, you know, just, um, you know dead in the water, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but um, that those restrictions had limited the nighttime operation of the wind wind turbines. However, it, it isn't really over because they, they, I mean, they still could impose these restrictions that the, the, this board still needs to approve the lead co plans to address a variety of things to, to mitigate harm to birds and bats and, and fish and, and also how to eventually decommission the wind farm. So they, you know, something more could happen on this. And I think that's what opponents to this project are hoping for. They, they're upset about the potential harm. But, but step back a minute. I mean, l- l- let's put this into the framework of what's, what's gone on with First Energy and HB6. You know, we now know the Fed say there was a $60 million bribery scheme funded by First Energy to get the nuclear bailouts and a great profit scheme for, for First Energy going forward, which raises lots of questions about how energy is regulated. A lot of eyes are now on the PUC for its cozy relationship with utilities at the expense of taxpayers. The same people who are on the PUC, many of them are on this board, the head of the PUC, the head of this board. So this made no sense in May. In May, it was a stinky deal. It was like, what do you mean you're approving it and not allowing it at night? That that came out of nowhere. Everybody was scratching their head, wondering what's going on in the background. We talked about this when the memo came out that they were going to stand by it. Like, this is surprising given the scrutiny they're under. Was any money used to lobby these guys because $60 million were used to lobby people to get HB6. So so now, kind of the right thing happened, right? I mean, this is a 10-year project to try and create some clean energy in Ohio. We're not going to get there unless we do experimentation. And kind of yesterday, things became right with the world. You're right. They could still mess it up, but they are under very intense scrutiny now. 
everybody is looking at this board thinking what's going on here, right? Yeah. And, you know, they did have like 32 lawmakers from Northeast Ohio from both parties who had signed this letter urging them to reconsider that earlier decision. So there was some clout on that side of things. You know, they just said that the staff had made this recommendation and the board really didn't have any compelling evidence to to overturn it like they did. So, um, as I said, the opponents still still aren't happy and they're, and they're hoping that some of these restrictions are going to be imposed. But um you yeah. gotta think. I, you, hold on, Laura. I know. I know you want to talk about the environment, <laughs> but I want to talk about the regulation. More. The, look, there is a stench about energy regulation in this state right now, and if there are honest members of these boards, they clearly would not like that. And so they are probably they want to take a shower to get clear of whatever's going on. <laughs> I. I. So I'm not. I'm not surprised that they fixed it. I was much more surprised when that memo came out that Jeremy got hold of that that showed they were going to stand by it because that just made no sense given the current climate. Now we're going to turn to our resident environmentalist and mom, Laura Johnson. And Lake Erie expert. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's really interesting, the idea of everyone, the opponents, right? It's that idea that the your enemy, like the the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that, right? That like you've got the Black Swamp Observatory, the Lake Erie Foundation, the Lake Erie Marine Trades Association. And then what we're talking about, like the big energy that doesn't want clean energy. So it's like this, anybody who can find a reason not to like this, but yeah, I mean, this wind farm is for six turbines, about eight miles North of Cleveland, um, a little bit West of Cleveland, I believe. So there's a lot of people that are concerned about the birds and the bats, which do migrate over the lake. That That is part of the pattern. And then there's also the idea of, of light pollution and noise pollution, even though I don't really know how much noise the termites make, but then what happens when you decommission them? So I think there are a lot more questions that people are going to be asking, but you're right. This is going to play out the correct way rather than just putting an absurd thing on it and approving, but not making it palatable at all. Yeah. The decommissioning is a key point because once they're done, the people who who have been running it can just walk away. So you do need to build in right. a very big fund to take these things out so that they don't sit out there and because and do bad things to the lake. It's it's weird. I think that life um, is only supposed to be about 20 years. Like it's not that long. And, you know, we've all seen oil derricks rusting places and, you know, the old gas pumps. We Nobody wants to see that in the lake. So, right. They, these are things they need to address. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE How much could Ohio taxpayers save if we ever make good on the promise to reform our bail system to make it more fair for people in poverty and for black people and Hispanic people and all the people that the system seems skewed against? Lord Johnson, this has become a very frustrating story. We launched a project four years ago called Justice for All in in which we were calling for this kind of reform. The, The immediate reaction from the court system was we're not going to do it. And we threatened to put every judge on Front Street every day until we got explanations for why. And they said, OK, OK, we'll do it. They impaneled huge groups of people. They've had lots of meetings. But it's four years down the road. and We haven't done a damn thing to make the system more fair. You know, people of color, people in poverty are still getting locked up while people who have means are not. But this is a huge pocketbook issue. You would think that the Republicans who always say they're about pocketbook issues would jump on this bandwagon 
And you're about to give us the numbers as to why. Right, exactly. The American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio put out a, a report. They say the state could save between $199 million and $264 million a year by adopting common sense bail reform policies. So this report was created by an economist. They use data from jails in Cuyahoga, Franklin, Athens, and Vinton counties. So that's a big array of different places in the state. The idea is to allow all suspects to be released on the day they are arrested unless the judge deems them a flight risk or a threat to a specific person. And then even if they are detained, the court would have to hold a bail hearing within 48 hours. This is a human decency thing. And I would have thought that the, the, the social justice atmosphere that has been thriving this year in the country would zero in on this because, you know, every step of the justice system is skewed against people of color. And this is one of the the easiest things you could do to fix it and it mm-hmm. would save money. And yet it, it's not happening. I mean, I, you know, after we get beyond COVID, we're going to have to start putting Buddhist and the judges and the prosecutor back on front street because four years is too damn long. We should have had the reform. Well, you just need the pandemic, right? The pandemic's been able to do what nobody could get done for years, which was to lower the jail populations. Um, Because before the pandemic, um, the incarceration levels were among the highest since 1970. And then as we all know, like basically got the jail cleared out. So it has been creeping up ever since, but it, it really, everybody got together and they made these cases happen and, and, and got people out of jail. And if they could do it for a pandemic in a very short amount of time, like you think that they could work together to make this happen on a regular basis. I know. And it's called the justice system, which implies equal treatment, but it's not. And but the, it yeah. should be. The ACLU report found that black suspects in Cuyahoga County were more likely to have a bond set over $10,000 and more likely to be denied release compared to white individuals charged with the same crime, which is just wrong. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the most enlightening thing Governor Mike DeWine had to say in an interview for our bonus podcast, Publishing Sunday? Jane Cahoon, you're going to start with this. It was a it was a fascinating conversation. We didn't set out to ask him about facts. He lays out the facts every Tuesday and Thursday. What we were trying to do was to get inside his head a little bit to share what it's been like being the guy that's in charge for six months of this unprecedented pandemic. So what what did you find to be the most enlightening thing that he said? Well, as you said, he said a lot of interesting things, but but I think I was most intrigued by when he talked about the difficulty of his decision to to close the schools and then the decision to allow them to reopen. You know, you asked him why he was okay with that, with letting kids go back to school. And he frankly admitted that he really was not okay yeah. with it, that, that he worries about it every single day. And, and then he went on to give a really interesting explanation about why both closing schools and reopening them are problematic in, in different ways. It was just very interesting. Laura, what did you, what was your key, key thing? I know there was lots, but what, what stuck out the most? <laughs> um, I like that. I like that he laughed when I called it wine with the wine. Um, <laughs> and I really like that he called it Groundhog Day, right? Like I thought it was just us where we get up and we report the news all day. But I mean, this guy gets up at 6 a.m. and starts working at 6.15 and just, he, he just is doing his darndest to like 
help the people of Ohio. And you got to give him a lot of credit for that. He's, it comes across very genuine. Yeah, I appreciated him agreeing to do it because there is a little bit of a risk getting on getting on for half hour with us. I mean, we're I mean, Chris Vernowski, who's off this week, was just kicking himself because he would have loved to have been part of it. Uh, and and then I, I appreciated him actually answering the questions. I mean, I, I there was a lot riding on it. You know, if he would have given us the stock pad answers, it would not have been interesting. But he did open up. And I, I think people are going to everybody that's been following this, which is the whole state, I think will take away something to hear what's behind all of the stuff he's been doing, what 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 he's been thinking, what what his war room discussions have been. So it's good stuff. Look for it Sunday. We'll also have a story about some of the highlights uh, on Cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Which school districts in Cuyahoga County are planning to bring students back to the classroom anytime soon? Lord Johnston, this is a trick question because this changes by the hour. But you know, I think Stolen is announcing today when it's going to be. But we did query all the districts. And what's what are some of the highlights? What are the general themes that we learned? So there are a whole bunch that are considering this right now. Um, there are a lot that are going to wait until after their first quarter, which is going to end sometime in October. Um to decide whether to go back. Some are just looking at the data and where the state data was just released Thursday showing cases in different districts um, before they make a decision. Some like independents never went remote. They've been going five days a week since their school started. Some like Bay Village and Brexville open buildings this week. And some like Rocky River are making plans to go back in a few weeks. Of course, I love this. As angry as parents were about remote schooling, and we talked about this a lot, now they're mad because the hybrid model for a lot of these districts means kids are going to get less teaching time. So we've got a whole new argument to start talking about. Look, we have, you know, multiple weeks now of the 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 much improved version of remote learning, but it's not ideal. I mean, I think, you know, from all the anecdotal evidence we have, kids are tripping on this and there are times where in their they're in the remote room and they feel like they're too they're too long while teachers are moving between students i think the teachers are finding it somewhat frustrating when when the kids just kind of disappear from the screen and you know there there is no substitute for having a teacher with a first person in the classroom although even that's going to be very different i think they'll still be on computers going to they'll be spread out so far that it won't be like they're together you're you're You've been dealing with this now for, what, two or three weeks. Will you be glad that the kids go back or will you be worried about the quality of the education when they're only going for half a day? I'm really glad that my kids are going to be go back. You know, different kids react different ways to learning. We all have different kinds of brains and some are visual, some are auditory learners. And I think it's really difficult to learn math on a screen. And I'm looking at these and I'm like, you know, the type is just really small and you have to type all your answers. And I just think the kids benefit from working with paper and pencil and the way that their brains work and being able to ask questions and see what other kids are doing. And and I, I really applaud the educators for what they've been able to do on Zoom. It is so much better than it was in the fall, but there is no substitute for being able to raise your hand and or just your teacher noticing that you are confused, right? It's it's hard to do that on a Zoom screen. So and I'm, you know, I'm hoping that this is just one more step toward getting kids back, you know, to a regular education. 
But you got to hope as the weather gets cold and the spread of the virus gets easier that this just doesn't infect every school parent out there. I mean, there is there, there are trade-offs to whatever we do and, right. and the big unknown here. And we and we haven't had districts with kids back in school long enough to know whether that's causing a surge. By two weeks from now, we probably will. So by the time the districts are about to open the doors, they might have a little better idea of how safe it'll be. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee raising questions about Cuyahoga County Judge J. Philip Calabrese, who was nominated to the federal bench? Jane Cahoon, there there are multiple Ohio judges nominated, but Calabrese has become a little bit of a lightning rod for anxiety. Why? Well, first of all, he and the two other Ohio nominees were approved by the committee, so their nominations are going to the Senate floor. It wasn't stopped or anything. But some members did raise questions about some of Calabrese's past work, including his work on behalf of Robert Murray, the CEO of of the Ohio coal company Murray Energy, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. But And apparently he also did some work for another company that, that operated and owned the only U.S. facility that slaughtered horses for human consumption. But Senator Dianne Feinstein of California was uh, a chief critic here. She was worried about this, well, where Calabrese represented Murray Energy in a lawsuit against the Chagrin Valley Times, you know, a small local newspaper here. He sued the paper for defamation after it criticized him for firing 156 employees. And um, apparently the newspaper, you know, won that case. Then the court said it's reporting and commentary were substantially true or, or protected opinion. But um, she, Feinstein, felt that, that the lawsuit, that it was documented that the lawsuit against the newspaper was undertaken with the purpose to harass and, and deter critics. However, I I should point out, as I said, his nomination was approved by the committee, and all three of those nominations were supported by both of Ohio's U.S. Senators, Republican Rob Portman and Democrat Sherrod Brown. I mean, Sherrod Brown called them all seasoned lawyers and public servants who were recommended by the Bipartisan Judicial Selection Commission, and he said they had widespread support from Ohio's legal community, and he's, he's confident that they're all going to serve with honor and impartiality. So in the end, you know, I, he, he got the support he needed. It is disappointing, though, that he took that case in, against the, the newspaper because it was a completely bogus lawsuit. Murray Energy has a long history of suing just to harass. And for a small newspaper like that, doesn't have deep pockets. It could have put him out of business. John Oliver on HBO has had a field day taking apart Murray Energy and, and been sued by them. <laughs> and, and it's been some of the most entertaining things he's ever done. And, you know, it's not like a criminal case where, you know, you have a right to have a lawyer and lawyers represent you whether you were, you're, they think you're guilty or not. It's, it's the way criminal courts work. A civil practice attorney can turn down a stinky lawsuit. And the fact that he didn't, I think, does raise legitimate questions. I'm glad it came up, and and I hope we don't under, end up with the First Amendment suit in front of them. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland getting a bit of a windfall from the state, dating back to a dispute from 2005 to 2007? Or Johnson, it's always nice when a school district that's as impoverished as Cleveland gets millions of dollars, but it, this was as a result of the state kind of not doing the right thing, and now... 
things are right. What's going on? Right. So Cleveland's one of three districts that recently won $42 million in this case against the Ohio Department of Education. Dayton and Toledo were the two others. And this dates back to 2005 to 2007, when it looks like the state did not count the add-in students. So they were basing their funding on the count from October and weren't adding in any kids that had moved into the district after that. So Cleveland's getting about $13.7 million plus interest, which, I mean, that was like 15 years ago. The interest is probably going to add up. That's real money. And and for a district that's been scrambling to make sure the kids have broadband for remote learning and having the staff on hand, uh, they don't get a lot of good news about finances in the Cleveland public schools. Uh, this was this was good for them. You know, I hope <laughs> I hope they use the money well. It's this week in the CLE. What are the possible endings for the investigation of First Energy by the Securities and Exchange Commission? Jane Cahoon, we we talked about earlier in the week that the number of agencies investigating First Energy are adding up. But the, the SEC is a very different kind of animal, a different kind of investigative agency. And we wondered, what could the results be? So Sabrina Eaton went and did some research, and what did she tell us? Well, we do know that their investigations are conducted privately, so so we, you know, the bottom line is we don't know a lot about where where this particular one is going to go, but we do know some things about how they operate. They look for violations of federal securities laws, and they've done some really high profile investigations, like junk bond king Michael Milken, who was convicted of securities fraud, and. And Martha Stewart, who was accused of insider trading. But anyway, the kind of violations they deal with include things like insider trading, theft, violating broker dealers' responsibility to treat customers fairly, lying about securities, manipulating market prices, and selling unregistered securities. And they can do things like seek monetary penalties in, in civil, uh, in a civil fashion, or you know, seek the return of illegal profits, uh, you know, do like cease and desist orders that prohibit further violations or audits. So there's a number of, you know, possible outcomes. They they can, you know, seek this redress through administrative law proceedings or or they can work with law enforcement officials who who bring criminal charges. So we, as I said, we really don't know where this particular one is going, but um, there are a lot of possibilities. Well, it's interesting because we do have civil suits that are starting to be filed, arguing that they did manipulate their stock prices through bribery and it defrauded investors when the, the news came out and the stock dropped. So if the SEC finds that officers of the company did bad things that artificially inflated the value of the stock, uh, not saying that, that happened, but if that did happen, some of the people could go to jail. I mean, it, I mean right. it, with the cases you mentioned, Martha Stewart went to prison. Right. So right. the people at First Energy must be a little bit nervous these days. Uh, it's a good piece by Sabrina Eaton. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. All right, Laura, this one's for you. Why <laughs> is Pete the Pelican hanging out on the Cleveland shores of Lake Erie? This is a delightful story that came came to us by way of big fun. So take us through how we learned about it, what's going on, and how it will end. 
Yeah, we got an email about this with some photos of the pelican. And it's like, wait, do we have pelicans in Lake Erie? No, we don't have brown pelicans in Lake Erie. So he probably blew in from a storm. And this is not the first time he's been pound- spotted off a of Cuyahoga County shore. Uh, there was one at 20, uh, at Huntington Beach in 2013. But I don't know how long that pelican stayed or if he got a cute name like Pete. So Pete was spotted by the owner of a sailing charter business um, on the break wall by Edgewater. Well, let's and name him. Let's let's help him out. He he brought us the story. Let's say who it is. Scott Sanders. And uh, it's Cleveland Sailing, uh, I believe. And they do charters and they do lessons, too. So if you want to learn how to sail, you can. Um but he is a Pete is a brown pelican. He's a, which is the smallest kind of pelican, and it they live on the east and west coast during uh, the summer months, and then go to the Gulf Coast in the fall and winter. And I did not realize this, but so they're like a cousin of a white pelican, which actually uh, is I don't know native to the western basin of the of Lake Erie, but at least has like a toehold there. The uh, the it's hanging out with cormorants and and gulls and apparently uh, it it's finding an ample supply of fish right off the break wall. So thanks to Steve Presser, big fun for bringing it to our attention. It's a cool story uh, and it will go south. Right, the prediction is as the weather gets cold, like today, it'll <laughs> it'll start to migrate back yeah, to its home. I'm not sure when they normally migrate, but yeah. So you know he's going to leave, but maybe he'll like Cleveland so so much that he'll just come back every summer and it'll be our little pelican. I you know on the the lake if he can find his way because they're predicting a storm kind of blew him here, right? Uh, and they may not know how to get back. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week of news, and it was a hell of a week of news. <laughs> so I hope you both get some uh, get some rest and recreation this weekend, come back fresh. And again, we'll have a special episode with Governor Mike DeWine that we published Sunday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll return with another roundup of the news Monday. <laughs>